American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about the first woman's religious community in the United States, the Carmel of Port Tobacco, Maryland. They certainly were the first because, well, they came over and established their Carmel within a short time after such a thing became legal in the United States. Much earlier, and they would have been breaking the law. And Port Tobacco is on the itinerary for our upcoming pilgrimage to Southern Maryland and Northern Virginia during the week after Easter next year. Yeah, when I was a seminarian, I'd hear the guys from the Archdiocese of Washington talk about going down to Port Tobacco, and they always just talked about how peaceful and beautiful the country is down there and how prayerful the the sisters are. I'm really, really looking forward to getting to the sacred place. The natural beauty and the grace and the peace that just fill the air. I could really use some of that right now. I know. With the pandemic continuing, plus the craziness of the holiday season, sometime in the beautiful lands along the left bank of the Potomac sound Amazing. Plus Baltimore, Annapolis, our old stomping grounds in Old Town Alexandria. It's going to be a fantastic, prayerful, refreshing trip. Everyone should get information at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash pilgrimages. All right. Now, before we get started, one thing right off the bat, the name, Port Tobacco. It's an odd name for a place where Carmelites put down roots. It does sound odd, but let's clear that up with some history. First, yes, it does have reference to tobacco being the dominant cash crop in the region when the town became prominent. Yes, and shortly after the arrival of the English Catholic settlers in the 1630s, Port Tobacco grew to be the second largest city in the colony. It was, at the time, a port city on the Potomac River. And the Potomac is very wide at this point, a few miles wide as it nears the Chesapeake Bay. But the name didn't just come from the fact that it was an important port city and the major product that went through it was tobacco. There was also the happy accident that one of the native tribes in the region was known as the Potopoco, and the river that flowed into the Potomac at the point where the town stood was named for this tribe, or maybe the tribe was named for the river. Either way, between Potopoco being a prominent name in the region, the town being a port city, and the main crop being tobacco, Port Tobacco it was. Nowadays, of course, the city is several miles inland due to the watercourse changing and silting of the mouth of the Port Tobacco River. Plus, tobacco is no longer a major crop in the area, but the name remains. So that's the Port Tobacco part of the story. Now for how Carmelites ended up in such a random place. Well... In the providence of God, nothing is random. Well, that's true. No matter how hard it can be to believe at times. Yeah, seriously. In this case, the path begins in Charles County in southern Maryland. It wends its way through the Austrian Netherlands, which is modern-day Belgium, and then comes back to these American shores. 
The main players involved are members of the Matthews and Neal families, two of the earliest Catholic families in Maryland. Both came over in the 1630s and settled near what would become Port Tobacco. The Matthews family built a large home in Charles County at the beginning of the 19th century and called it Mount Air. Now, a quick point of clarification, Mount Air is not in or near Mount Airy. Mount Airy is a town in the heavily populated area between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. in north-central Maryland. Mount Air is just a house and grounds in Charles County down in southern rural Maryland. Mount Air is still a private resident, so we unfortunately will not be able to stop there on our pilgrimage. And Mount Airy doesn't have any historical significance for us, so we won't be stopping there either. Right. So it was at Mount Air that Anne Teresa Matthews was born in 1732 to Joseph and Susanna Matthews. When she reached her 20s, she desired to enter religious life, but this was the 1750s, so there were no opportunities for her in the American colonies. Now, this was especially tragic since Maryland had been founded in the 1630s as a haven for Catholics fleeing persecution in England. But within the first few decades of the existence of Maryland, Catholics had to fight for their right to practice their faith. Even across the ocean, English Protestants just couldn't accept a place where Catholics lived in freedom. For a bit more detail on the early decades of this fight, we commend our episode number nine on Margaret Brent. She came over from England in 1638, just a few years after the founding of Maryland. She took a leadership role in the fight against the forces of Parliament during the English Civil War, and she eventually became the most significant landowner in the colonies in her day. Catholicism was legal in the colony for a while, but in the 1690s, Catholicism was suppressed, and Catholics had to live basically a second-class Citizens. Now, to be clear, Catholicism wasn't outright forbidden in Maryland as it was in other colonies like New York. But even in Maryland, Mass could not be celebrated in public. No priests could go about presenting themselves as priests. And anyone who publicly identified as Catholic was barred from government positions, including in the military. Mass was celebrated, but only in chapels built on private land. And those were not publicly advertised as Catholic chapels. You just had to know. The most significant of these private chapels was that at the White Marsh Plantation, which was owned by the mother of John Carroll. White Marsh became the center of Jesuit life after the American Revolution. It was where the Jesuits selected John Carroll to be their recommendation for the first Bishop of Baltimore, and it was the sort of the first chancery of the new Diocese of Baltimore when it was established in 1789. Obviously, there's loads of history there for another episode, but anyone who joins us on our pilgrimage will get a first-hand account of it, because we'll be visiting the chapel at White Marsh. But let's get back to Anne Teresa Matthews. She felt called to the religious life, so in 1754, she left Mount Air for the Carmelite Monastery in Hoogstraten, Austrian Netherlands, again, present-day Belgium. She took her vows and was given the name Sister Bernardina Teresa Xavier of St. Joseph. In 1774, after 20 years in the community, she was elected prioress of the convent. By this point, a couple of her nieces had also come from Maryland to Hoogstraten. In 1780, Father Charles Neal became chaplain to the monastery. 
Father Charles Neal is another interesting sidelight on this story. He was one of seven boys, they had two sisters as well, and six of the seven boys became priests, or at least entered formation with the Jesuits. When the Jesuits were suppressed in 1773, Charles Neal and other Jesuits studying in Europe had to pursue ordination through other channels. He and many others finished their studies and were ordained in Ghent. Charles was ordained in 1780. The brothers Neal were an important group in early American Catholicism. One of them, Francis, was a two-time president of Georgetown College, and another brother, Leonard, was also a president of Georgetown, and he was the second Archbishop of Baltimore. And one of the Neals, were not sure which, was summoned by George Washington when the great general lay dying at Mount Vernon. We don't have proof that this Father Neal received Washington into the church before he died, but the evidence is... Well, rather suggestive. We talked about that a bit in episode 85, and Mount Vernon is on our pilgrimage itinerary. The Neal and Matthews families also had at least one marriage between them. Mother Bernardina's brother, William, married one of Father Charles' sisters, Mary. Yes, William and Mary. So Father Charles was the uncle to those Carmelite sisters, who were sisters, on their mother's side. Got it? (laughs) Whatever. The point is, the Neals and Matthews were both prominent families whose names will no doubt come up more in future episodes. Man, there's so many interconnections when talking about these early days in Maryland. But back to our narrative. Things were going pretty well for the Carmel and Hoogstraten until about 1790. But then everything went nuts. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the end of the 1780s and the early 1790s were just a bad time for Catholics in France and Belgium, but they were a great boon to the church in America. The French Revolution caused many great Catholics to flee for their lives, and so America got the Trappists of Gethsemane, Bishop John Dubois, St. Rose Philippine Duchesne, Father Gabriel Richard, Bishop Benedict Joseph Leger, Bishop Louis de Bourg, and all the other Sulpicians, and many others. We've done episodes on a lot of those names already, and more will come. And then, as if the revolution in France weren't enough, the Holy Roman Emperor, Joseph II, began dissolving the monasteries in Belgium. But God provides, often in strange and ironic ways. Just as the devoutly Catholic parts of Europe were becoming inhospitable towards Catholics... America became the land of liberty. Right. For 150 years, Catholics have been fleeing from America to Europe for religious education and to join religious orders. Now the tables had turned 180 degrees. The new constitution and the Bill of Rights became the law of the land in 1788, eliminating the anti-Catholic laws that had prevented women's religious orders from establishing monasteries. With the sudden shift in fortunes, Mother Bernardina's brother Ignatius, himself a priest, wrote to her and urged her to consider coming back to Maryland to establish a monastery near their home. The decision didn't take long. In May of 1790, Mother Bernardina and her two nieces, Sister Mary Aloysia and Sister Mary Eleonora, along with Sister Claire Joseph, who was originally from England, boarded a ship with Father Charles Neal and sailed for America. They were received warmly by family in Port Tobacco. A plot of land was made available for them, and in October of 1790, the Mount Carmel Monastery was established in its present location in Port Tobacco, Maryland. This establishment made them the first women's religious community in the new United States. 
Now, it's important to note that this wasn't the first religious community in what is now the United States. Ursuline sisters had established a convent in New Orleans in 1727. However, in 1790, New Orleans wasn't yet part of the U.S. It wouldn't be so until the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Exactly. New Orleans was under either French or Spanish rule until then, and both of those were, of course, Catholic countries. The sisters at Port Tobacco quickly gained more vocations, and they prospered at first. Mother Bernardina, who was 58 when the sisters came over in 1790, died at 68 in 1800. At that time, the monastery had 14 sisters, and things were growing. By 1807, there were 20, and by 1831, there were 24. But things didn't remain easy and smooth for the sisters. Their beloved chaplain, Father Charles Neal, also died in 1823. During the 1820s, their buildings deteriorated due to neglect, and their fortunes faded with agricultural difficulties. In 1831, things had gotten bad enough that Archbishop James Whitfield of Baltimore directed the Carmelites to abandon the monastery in Port Tobacco and reestablish themselves within the city of Baltimore. There, with Vatican approval, they operated a school to help support themselves. The Carmelites prospered in Baltimore, while the Port Tobacco Monastery sat abandoned and neglected. It was not, however, forgotten. Carmelites across the country maintained a love for the Port Tobacco Monastery as the first one in the country, and the locals certainly missed the sisters. The property was sold to a local farmer, but he didn't bother the old structures. Locals still called it the monastery, and there were faint hopes that someday the Carmelites would return to Port Tobacco. In 1933, this lingering dream took on some reality when a woman named Mary Talbot and her daughter Isabel came to see how the old monastery was getting along. They found only two buildings remaining after those hundred years, and those two were on the point of collapse. They were determined that this sacred place should not disappear and be forgotten, so they mounted a preservation campaign with the hope of restoring or reconstructing the buildings on the site and to establish it as a shrine. They even hoped that one day, due to their efforts, the nuns might come back. They formed the Restorers of Mount Carmel in Maryland and embarked on fundraising campaigns. Planning and laboring to make it all happen took many years, but it all kicked off with the approval and support of the Archbishop of Baltimore, Michael Joseph Curley. Within a few years, the main monastery building was restored and several other buildings were reconstructed. In 1954, a new chapel was dedicated. And then, in 1976... 43 years after the restoration began, the happy day arrived. Six Carmelite nuns returned to Port Tobacco and restored contemplative life to this earliest of American women's religious sites. The life was difficult for these intrepid women, and three had left by 1982. But with the aid of the Association of St. Teresa, a cooperative effort among Carmelite foundations in the U.S., the monastery stabilized and began to grow again. Nowadays, the Port Tobacco Monastery is home to 10 nuns. And in April of next year, a visit to the peaceful, holy, beautiful grounds of the Port Tobacco Monastery will be part of our pilgrimage. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. 
Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com give. To learn more about the Carmelite Support Tobacco, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Hester Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. Hi, everyone. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming we've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent. And may you have a blessed Christmas season.